Welcome back, my fellow creatives, to You've Got Five Pages to Tell Me It's Good, where I grab a new release at my local library and check to see if it can, you know, in five pages, tell me it's good. Now, this one, this is, this is an interesting one. Um, R.F. Quang, Quang, I apologize, Quang. Uh, has a new release. It looks like this is the first book in a trilogy. And it's called Babel. Or Babel. I mean, it depends on how you how you were raised with your Bible, I suppose. Uh, you know, a take on the Tower of Babel. Or Babel. Anyway, <clears throat> it's... I'm going to actually read the inside of the dust jacket because I find this to be a really interesting uh, premise because it's sort of an alternate history. It, it makes me think a little bit of um, almost not quite steampunk, but it seems to have that vibe as it were. 1828. Robin Swift, orphaned by cholera in Canton, is brought to London by the mysterious Professor Lovell. There, Robin trains for years in Latin, Ancient, Greek, and Chinese, all in preparation for the day he'll enroll in Oxford University's prestigious Royal Institute of Translation, also known as Babel. The tower and its students are the world's center for translation and, more importantly, magic. Silverworking, the art of manifesting the meaning lost in translation using enchanted silver bars, has made the British unparalleled in power as the arcane craft serves the Empire's quest for colonization. And then there's some more. And um, it's Robin, you know, must decide who does Robin support and who does he not support. And oh, world conflict. <clears throat> but no, I really liked this concept. It 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 has a little bit of that um oh ink spell. I believe that's Cornelia Funke. Uh F-U-N-K-E. I, I, I'm not doing so hot with my last names apparently. But I believe she wrote Ink Spell, and that was the story about people who were called silver tongues they if they read a story out loud they would actually manifest that characters from that story that the story would literally come to life if a silver tongue were to read the story aloud so i i kind of like how we have this touch of silver in here again the translation the power of the word the magic of the word um is is more powerful than anything else and it's of course in the tower of babel and if you know your bible and not everybody does then that's totally fine because not everybody was raised in it like this preacher's kid um in the tower of babel uh the the story goes where the all the peoples of the earth came together and they wanted to build a tower that reached heaven and the tower was called babel or no and and then god was like no you're not doing that and threw languages upon them all so they couldn't understand each other and then the tower was called babel and left unfinished and so on and so on um so i find this interesting as well then that this tower of translation where languages are learned and uh, deciphered would be called babel which has so long been the term associated with um not understanding someone i mean that's 
why we'll say things like you're babbling on. It's like, I can't even follow you at this point. So I really, I'm already digging the, uh, the idea here and the word choices used with location and place and such, and the unique magical world building we have here with wordplay. And considering I'm just glancing here, Kwong is a World Fantasy Award nominated author through her Poppy War trilogy and Hugo Nebula Locus. Yeah, this this lady knows what she's doing. All right, so I'm excited. Let's take a look and see how this, ooh, we have neat maps. I love a good map and their Regency style too, which is kind of cool. All right, okay, I'm excited. Let's take a little looky-loo now at chapter one. No prologue. I mean, there's an author's note just about like the history, which is fine. I think that's fine. We're going to focus on chapter one though. So, oh goodness, there is some Latin there and I'm not going to be good at speaking the original Latin. So we'll read the translation of the Latin from Antonio de Nebrija. Nebrija. Me and last names, honestly. Language was always the companion of empire, and as such, together they begin, grow and flourish, and later, together, they fall. Well, that's ominous. All right, so let's get to the first paragraph here. By the time Professor Litcher... Gosh, okay, let's start that again. By the time Professor Richard Lovell found his way through Canton's narrow alleys to the faded address in his diary, the boy was the only one in the house left alive. The air was rank, the floors slippery. A jug of water sat full, untouched by the bed. At first the boy had been too scared of retching to drink. Now he was too weak to lift the jug. He was still conscious, though he'd sunk into a drowsy, half-dreaming haze. Soon he knew he'd fall into a deep sleep and fail to wake up. That was what had happened to his grandparents a week ago, and then his aunts a day after, and then Miss Betty, the Englishwoman, a day after that. His mother had perished that morning. He lay beside her body, watching as the blues and purples deepened across her skin. The last thing she'd said to him was his name. Two syllables mouthed without breath. Her face had then gone slack and uneven. Her tongue lolled out of her mouth. The boy tried to close her filmy eyes, but her lids kept sliding back open. <sighs> That's a pretty intense opener. Very vivid. Um, and while in a way it's exposition because we're not seeing the action in the moment, it's still very clear and crisp enough that we can follow. And there's a definite weight here. I mean, these are, this is a family dying and a boy on the verge of death himself. But it's not, there, there's no childlike innocence in the descriptions of these deaths either. It's just very matter of fact, which I appreciate unlike my phone, which I forgot to silence. My apologies. So I, I, I really do like this opener. It's very clear. I, it, I wonder as a reader, why is Lovell 
going to this address in Canton. Like, we, it's easy enough to assume, well, it's because of the English woman. But being the skeptical writer that I am, I'm wondering, eh, was there something already where he was looking for this boy at the outset? Hmm. So we'll keep reading. Let's see what the next page tells us. No one answered when Professor Lovell knocked. No one exclaimed in surprise when he kicked through the front door. Locked because plague thieves were stripping the houses in the neighborhood bare. And though there was little of value in their home, the boy and his mother had wanted a few hours of peace before the sickness took them too. The boy heard all the commotion from upstairs, but he couldn't bring himself to care. By then, he only wanted to die. Professor Lovell made his way up the stairs, crossed the room, and stood over the boy for a long moment. He did not notice, or chose not to notice, the dead woman on the bed. The boy lay still in his shadows, wondering if this tall, pale figure in black could come to reap his soul. How do you feel? Professor Lovell asked. The boy's breathing was too labored to answer. Professor Lovell knelt beside the bed. He drew a slim silver bar out of his front pocket and placed it over the boy's bare chest. The boy flinched. The metal stung like ice. Triacle. Well, I'm not gonna, I don't know how to say it in French, but that's how Professor Lovell says it. Then in English, triacle. Triacle. The bar glowed a pale white. There came an eerie sound from somewhere, a ringing, a singing. The boy whined and curled onto his side, his tongue prodding confusedly around in his mouth. Bear with it, murmured Professor Lovell. Swallow what you taste. Seconds trickled by. The boy's breathing steadied. He opened his eyes. He saw Professor Lovell more clearly now. Could make out the slate gray eyes and curved nose. Well, there's another word I'm not going to be able to say. Ingobi they called it, a hawk's beak nose that could only belong on a foreigner's face. How do you feel now? asked Professor Lovell. The boy took another deep breath. Then he said in surprisingly good English, it's sweet. It tastes so sweet. Good. That means it worked. Professor Lovell slipped the bar back into his pocket. Is there anyone else alive here? No, whispered the boy, just me. Is there anything you can't leave behind? The boy was silent for a moment. A fly landed on his mother's cheek and crawled across her nose. He wanted to brush it off, but he didn't have the strength to lift his hand. I can't take a body, said Professor Lovell. Not where we're going. The boy stared at his mother for a long moment. My books, he said at last, under the bed. Professor Lovell bent beneath the bed and pulled out four thick volumes. Books written in English, spines battered from use, some pages worn so thin that the print was barely still legible. The professor flipped through them, smiling despite himself, and placed them in his bag. Then he slid his arms under the boy's thin frame and lifted him out of the house. In 1829, the plague that later became known as Asiatic Cholera made its way from Calcutta across the Bay of Bengal to the Far East, first to Siam, then Manila, then finally the shores of China on merchant ships. 
whose de dehydrated, sunken-eyed sailors dumped their waste into the Pearl the River, contaminating the waters where thousands drank, laundered, swam, and bathed. It hit at Canton like a tidal wave, rapidly working its way from the docks to the inland residential areas. The boys' neighborhood had succumbed within weeks, whole families perishing helplessly in their homes. When Professor Lovell carried the boy out of Canton's alleys, everyone else on his street was already dead. Um, so, just to pause here for a moment, uh, we have a great little use of world building here. Yes, we just had a paragraph of historical exposition, and that's fine. It was one paragraph. We're about to get back into motion and movement. Um, but I wanted to emphasize the silver bar bit because this we're that's only on the second page, and Kwong is making sure that we have at least some visual example of how magic works in there in this world. We may not get all the inner workings, cogs and wheels, as it were, but we've seen the magics. So we understand this is a magical society. And it does seem that magic is limited because the boy wasn't expecting to be healed. But this person, Lovell, clearly knew what he was doing. Also, there must clearly be limits because he does not try to raise the dead, which is fine because that always gets creepy. Um, but yes, that mix there and then the paragraph of historical exposition gives us a better sense of when we are and where we are before progressing on into this boy's healing stages. So back to it. The boy learned all this when he awoke in a clean, well-lit room in the English factory, wrapped in blankets softer and whiter than anything he'd ever touched. These only slightly reduced his discomfort. He was terribly hot, and his tongue sat in his mouth like a dense, sandy stone. He felt as though he were floating far above his body. Every time the professor spoke, sharp pangs shot through his temples, accompanied by flashes of red. You're very lucky, said Professor, professor Lovell. This illness kills almost everything it touches. The boy stared, fascinated by this foreigner's long face and pale gray eyes. If he let his gaze drift out of focus, the foreigner morphed into a giant bird. A crow. No, a raptor. Something vicious and strong. Can you understand what I'm saying? The boy wet his parched lips and uttered a response. Professor Lovell shook his head. English. Use your English. The boy's throat burned. He coughed. I know you have English, Professor Lovell's voice sounded like a warning. Use it. My mother, breathed the boy. You forgot my mother. Professor Lovell did not respond. Promptly, he stood and brushed at his knees before he left, though the boy could scarcely see how any dust could have accumulated in the few minutes in which he'd been sitting down. The next morning, the boy was able to finish a, broth of, a bowl of broth without retching. The morning after that, he managed to stand without much vertigo, though his knees trembled so badly from disuse he had to clutch the bed frame to keep from falling over. His fever receded, his appetite improved. When he awoke again that afternoon, he found the bowl replaced with a plate, with two thick slices of bread and a hunk of roast beef. He devoured these with his bare hands, famished. He spent most of the day in dreamless sleep, which was regularly interrupted by the arrival of one Mrs. Piper, a cheery round woman who plumped his pillows, 
wiped his forehead with deliciously cool wet cloths, and spoke English with such a peculiar accent that the boy always had to ask her several times to repeat herself. My word, she chuckled the first time he did this. Must be you've never met a Scot. A Scot? What is a Scot? Don't you worry about that, she patted his cheek. You'll learn the lay of Great Britain soon enough. That evening, Mrs. Piper brought him his dinner, bread and beef again, along with news that the professor wanted to see him in his office. It's just upstairs. The second door to the right. Finish your food first. He's not going anywhere. Yeah, we can finish this page. The boy ate quickly and, with Mrs. Piper's help, got dressed. He didn't know where the clothes came from. They were Western in style and fitted his short, skinny frame surprisingly well. But he was too tired then to inquire further. As he made his way up the stairs, he trembled, whether from fatigue or trepidation, he didn't know. The door to the professor's study was shut. He paused a moment to catch his breath, and then he knocked. Come in, called the professor. The door was very heavy. The boy had to lean hard against the wood to budge it open. Inside, he was overwhelmed by the musky, inky scent of books. There were stacks and stacks of them. Some were arrayed neatly on shelves, while others were messily piled up in precarious pyramids throughout the room. Some were strewn across the floor, while others teetered on desks that seemed arranged at random within the dimly lit labyrinth. Over here, the professor was nearly hidden behind the bookcases. The boy wound his way tentatively across the room, afraid the slightest mo wrong move might send the pyramids tumbling. Don't be shy, the professor sat behind a grand desk covered with books, loose papers, and envelopes. He gestured for the boy to take a seat across from him. Did they let you read much here? English wasn't a problem? I read some. The boy sat gingerly, taking care not to tread on the volumes. Richard Hackleut's travel notes, he noticed, amassed by his feet. We didn't have many books. I ended up rereading what we had. For someone who had never left Canton in his life, the boy's English was remarkably good. He spoke with only a trace of an accent. This was thanks to an Englishwoman, one Miss Elizabeth Slate, whom the boy had called Miss Betty, and who had lived with his household for as long as he could remember. He never quite understood what she was doing there. His family was certainly not wealthy enough to employ any servants, especially not a foreigner, but someone must have been paying her wages because she never left, not even when the plague hit. Her Cantonese was passably good, decent enough for her to make her way around town without trouble, but with the boy, she spoke exclusively in English. Her sole duty seemed to be taking care of him, and it was through conversation with her and later with British soldiers at the docks that the boy had become fluent. And I'm just going to stop here because I know we're almost out of time, but... This again, as a writer, I'm immediately wondering, this is foreshadowing something. This means something. The fact that there is this Englishwoman who was with this family, focused specifically on this boy. She was there with a purpose. This was not just some goodwill campaign or, you know, British out to just influence everybody just because they're British. No, there's there's a reason she was there. Because even the boy wonders, like, you know, we weren't paying her. I think that's worth noting. Which also then again makes me wonder if she was connected to Lovell somehow. And obviously we probably have to keep reading to find that out. Um, but there's definitely... I, I, I mean, I'll be... 
I, I know Rowling didn't start this, but there's definitely a little sense of, is this boy a special boy that needs to be taken in by a magical school? It, it, it has that sense to it, but because this world is clearly unique, we do have a sense of history without over-depending on historical language, which makes this pretty accessible for a modern reader. Um, but we are also getting such an emphasis on languages, which I appreciate since a lot of magic seems to depend on words and word choices. And just this act of translation, like the um, dust jacket was alluding to, the very knowledge of multiple languages is a power indeed. So I'm, I'm intrigued. I think it's fun when people are able to take a certain piece of history and, and do something fantastical with it so i'd like to keep going into this but this i mean not gonna lie this is a huge book this book is over 500 pages so you know if you are keen on this book just be prepared for an investment <laughs> it's gonna take a while but I, I i'd like to give it a go let's see how far i can i can explore in this and we'll see if we do have a fantasy next week or maybe something different we'll find out until then, read on, share on, and write on, my friends. Cheers.